America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 157. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now... Here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. This is Richard Ryerson. As always, I'm so appreciative of your support and that you're taking the time to listen to the show. You know, I couldn't do it without you, the supporters out there, the listeners. I'm so thankful that you're tuning in. You know, one of the top requests I've had over this past year is how did I launch this podcast? I get asked almost daily and I get asked for tips and techniques on how to create your podcast. And so, you know, I'm living proof that you can create and launch your own podcast in your spare time. If you don't know my story, this is a side hustle for me. I am a full-time pilot, full-time husband, full-time father of four daughters. And doing this podcast is my absolute favorite thing to do. And it has transformed my life. 18 months later, this podcast is downloaded in over 145 countries, hundreds of thousands of times. And it's afforded me multiple opportunities from partnerships to other employment opportunities. But most importantly, it's created the professional network of my dreams, something I wasn't even thinking about when I started down this road 18 months ago. You know, none of those opportunities would have been possible without the creation of this podcast. And so I'm challenging all of you. If you're interested in creating your own podcast, it's cap- you're capable of doing it. It's there for your grasp. You know, and that's why I'm proud to introduce my latest and my first online product and membership site. It's called the Podcast Roadmap. You can get more information at thepodcastroadmap.com, but basically it's a tutorial, a membership site where I break it down for you super simple and show you step-by-step how to launch and grow your own professional podcast. I show you exactly how I did it behind the scenes, soup to nuts, no holds barred, show you everything how I launched Dose of Leadership and the Courageous Leadership Podcast. You'll learn everything it takes to interview your heroes, build a professional network, and even get paid in the process. So, The good news is, unlike a lot of other podcast masterminds out there that require you to have a big bag of cash, the podcast roadmap is all about getting up and running with minimal investment and learning how to do it all in your spare time. I'm introducing it to the public for $197, but if you're interested in it and you're listening to the show and because you're a fan of the show, you enter the coupon code PODCAST, you'll get $75 off that $197. So take a look and get more information at thepodcastroadmap.com. And I hope to see you on the inside. Again, thanks for your support, and here's the interview. Well, I'm so honored to have on my show today Bob Vanerick. He's a popular leadership speaker and author and the former CEO of five companies from a startup to the $1 billion New York Stock Exchange company, Sensormatic. He was an officer at two Fortune 500 firms, including Pitney Bowes, one of Jim Collins' good-to-great companies, and Bob's businesses have won numerous awards, including a state-level Malcolm Baldrige Quality Prize, and the Shingo Prize for Manufacturing Excellence. And Bob has served on numerous boards. He's the co-author of Triple Crown Leadership, Building Excellent, Ethical, and Enduring Organization. It's a 2013 USA Best Book Awards winner. 
and his writing has been featured in Fast Company, American Management Association, the Center for Creative Leadership, Leader to Leader, Leadership Excellence, and many more. He's taught leadership at the University of Denver and Colorado Mountain College and is the Chairman Emeritus of the Val Leadership Institute. Bob, what an impressive uh, bio there. Welcome, and thanks for coming on the Dose of Leadership podcast. Well, thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for reading that long bio. <laughs> Isn't it funny? It always, it's always funny. I hate when people read my bio. It makes me feel kind of funny, you know. But uh, I, you know, I much prefer much shorter bio. Yeah. Let's, let's see what the content is. Huh? Yeah, exactly. And it's always it's always funny even writing it yourself. I, I don't know, I always feel weird doing it, but I uh, mean, you know, you got to do it, and people got to know you. But you should be proud of what you've done. I mean, I love I love. Uh, your work in leadership and and what you did around and you and your son and we've tried to get your son on this interview too but we're going to get him at a later date technology was kind of foiling us today but tell us a little bit more about you how you became so passionate about uh, leadership and teaching leadership well i became a student of leadership in uh, high school when i had uh, to move from a very bad peer group up to the captaincy of the football team for three years and i I was really fascinated by leadership and what it was, but I'll have to tell you, uh, I was very confused about it for many decades yeah. because I was raised under the old command and control yeah. uh, model, Richard, you know, where the leader has all the answers right. and you never let people see you sweat and you're never vulnerable and things like that. There's a, there's a strange story. When I got out of business school, I had a simple goal. I want to run something right (laughs) if you you deconstruct that who's it all about it's about me yeah in charge it didn't matter as long as i was in charge and it took me a long time um to really learn that nobody wants to follow that kind of leader i think an inflection point in my life was reading the works of robert greenleaf on servant leadership that was just a, a mind flip where the leader serves i mean and who determines whether you're a leader, whether anybody follows you. That's right. So it's been a lifelong study, Richard. Well, it's funny how you bring that up. I think I don't know really any leader that doesn't kind of go through that transformation, and sometimes it's longer and shorter and more painful than others. But I think we all kind of get into this kind of arena thinking that it is about the individual, the position, the title, just because that's what's ingrained in us. And I think that's what we visually we see and we expect. And uh, um, But the more that you study it, and even if you go back into the annals of history, that authoritarian leadership never sustains itself. It is always the servant leadership that, is, that has had the lasting legacy. It's, it, it, I would argue it's not something new. What do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. You go back thousands of years, uh, if you look at the writings in the Bible and many other of the leadership philosophers, leadership's been studied for thousands of years, has hundreds of different, you know, definitions, but frequently it comes back to the model as servant. And I think that there's another element, too, if I could add something to that, and that is so much of the leadership development work is focused on the individual. Right. What are the skills or qualities that you need to have to become a leader. You need to be more innovative. You need to be a better speaker. You need to be more charismatic or visionary, all those things. And they're focused on the individual. And as Greg and I write in Triple Crown Leadership, we believe that model, which is leader-centric, is really morphing into something that is more leadership-centric, where leadership is actually a group dynamic. It's an ebb and flow that goes from 
one person to another. Sometimes you're leading, sometimes you're following, sometimes you're managing. And so it's a very dynamic group process, not a solo act. But so much of the training has been on what skills and qualities you have to have to be the leader. And I think that leads us down the wrong path. Man, I love that you said that. That's the first time that I've talked to somebody, and we you've kind of hit that on the head. It, it really just kind of came to me that you're absolutely right, that uh, as leaders, when we get into these positions, that it's, it's for me, it's almost the difference between what you have designated leadership and functional leadership. And let me give you an example. It's more like when I fly multi-crew aircraft. When I flew KC-130s in the Marine Corps, I had seven to eight people on that airplane at that time. And depending on the mission, the leadership ebb and flowed, as you put it, to various people throughout the flight. However, there was always one person that was accountable, let's say aircraft commander. But the leadership responsibility or the functional leadership responsibility kind of ebbed and flowed and, and shifted and, and changed hands multiple times throughout the flight. So that's interesting that you brought that up. I love that. Yeah, well, I think that's a good example of that. And it's not that two people lead the same thing at the same time. Right. That's a conflict. But but the smart leader recognizes when somebody else has passion or expertise for something and then zips up his or her lip and lets that other person lead. And that's that's really the job of leadership, not to do everything yourself, but to unleash the other leaders in the organization so that dynamically you're a much stronger organization. Yeah. I like that. You know, Triple Crown Leadership, you talk about, it, I'm curious about the genesis and the passion behind it. I see in a lot of your writings and what you see is like you're talking about all the leadership failures that we see around us, the breakdowns and the scandals. Was that the genesis of the book or, or what was it? Well, it has been. It was the genesis of the book. We see so many examples on Wall Street and K Street and religious, government, sports organizations of poor leadership. And yet, both Greg and I are optimistic because we think there is a sea change going on. And so when we decided to write about leadership and recognizing that neither of us are celebrities, we decided to go out and interview uh, organizations around the world that we think were doing it uh, quite differently, much better. And several years later, 61 organizations in 11 countries from Google and eBay to GE, startups, turnarounds, uh, educational institutions, nonprofits. And we really teased out some wonderful uh, leadership practices. And I don't pretend that this is the norm today, but we think it is the cutting edge of what's going to happen over the next decade or two as leadership changes. Capitalism has to morph. The partisanship uh, in Washington, the gridlock has to morph. And people in this age of WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden and, and cell phone photographs and transparency, you can't hide it anymore the right. way you could 25 years ago. So it started out with saying, what is the better way? And then trying to point some, some guideposts to what we think is evolving in the world of leadership. So what is it? What are, what are some of those things? What was the biggest... Um kind of surprise as you went through this process. A lot of times when I talk to authors, there's always some kind of um, unique thing that they weren't expecting. What was it for you in this book? Well, we tease out five leadership practices, and I would, I would say that that the, that the most surprising one was the, was the fourth one, which we call stewardship. 
and and stewardship involves what we were just talking about, recognizing that everyone and anyone can be a leader at times, and the leadership is a group performance, not a solo act, dynamic as you described in the cockpit. But the further, but the further element of stewardship is to recognize that everyone has two jobs in their organization, whatever it may be. They have their regular job in marketing or IT or flying the plane or navigating, but they also have another job in these triple E organizations trying to be excellent, ethical, and enduring. And that other job is to be a steward for the culture, the high-performance culture of character. They have what we call an irrevocable license to lead by the values. Mm. An irrevocable license to lead by the values. In a previous step uh, that we call colors, we define what's the purpose of our organization, what are our shared values, what's our vision, and that's really important to engage people, especially the younger generation today. But when you go over to step four, what you find out is that not only is leadership a group performance, but everybody has this irrevocable license to lead by the values. The boss can empower you or disempower you. You have a policy manual, but it can never cover everything. And so as long as you give people this license to lead by the shared values, hold them accountable, even the CEO, even the pilot in the in the uh, cockpit, um, somebody can say, Captain, I'm not really sure what you're doing there yeah. is right, and, and, and I'm going to call you on that because it's, you know, it's not safe, and, and, and safety is our primary value in this airplane. When you unleash those leaders with the irrevocable license to lead by the shared values, an amazing thing happens. You just get this group dynamic. We we didn't fully understand that uh, before we did the research for the book. So that was probably, to me, the most surprising element that came out. You know, and that is a great insight, Bob. I think that is one of the – what you just hit upon, I think, is, is – um, for me, one of the biggest things that's missing, especially in, on the the um, civilian side of the house, and coming from the Marine Corps side, um, that was drummed into you time and time and time again. And it's all about, like you said, pushing that leadership responsibility, delegating that authority down to the absolute lowest levels. That what you're, that's what you're talking about there. And giving them the power. And I equate it again, going back to aviation, which I know, that's the environment you want in a multi-crew aircraft. Can you imagine? You don't let me land with the gear up. I don't care how important yeah. you think I am. Do not, you know, you you are obligated to speak up, and it's an obligation, and that's what you're getting at right there. It is an obligation for you. You're on this same ship, the same organization. Don't let me crash in the mountain is essentially what you're saying. And, and, you, and yeah, you, I, I'm sure you've heard the story of the study that was done. I think if it was of of. Korean Airlines 10 or 20 yeah. years ago when yep. they had a high number of accidents and they studied it and they looked at the culture and it was a very hierarchical culture yep. where it was not safe to challenge the captain, yep. not safe to raise issues. And when they worked at changing that culture and said, no, we, I mean, we're dealing with safety and lives here and, and, and we're going to have to overcome those hierarchical barriers there, then, then the whole safety uh, uh, record of the airlines changed. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that oh, one. Oh, yeah. 
Well, for, and you even see that even today. You know, I feel very blessed to have gone through the flight training at the time that I did because, you know, right when all of that type of crew resource management, um, you know, all really came into play, and, and it goes at the heart of what you're talking about there of giving people or creating a culture of the freedom to speak up without repercussion. You know, you have an obligation as the leader to receive it um, and as the you know, as the person in the in the kind of lesser position, if you will, you have that obligation to speak up. And um, if you build barriers and walls in there, I mean, lives have been lost for simple things because of a burned out light bulb and someone was afraid to speak up. I mean, literally, that has happened. And I don't know. So it gets it gets to the heart of what you're talking about there. I love that you kind of found that as, as an insight because business really has... And like, like I said, I, I would love to see your perspective as you, you know, growing up as a young executive, maybe in the '60s and '70s. Was it more authoritarian, or I mean, was it just was it just so foreign to have businesses like that where you kind of encourage people to speak up? Well, I think it was foreign, and it's it's not that people um, didn't care about these things. It's just we didn't have other leadership models. I, I mean, when I talk to people today still, I hear, well, well, I'm not a leader. I'm just a yeah. fill-in-the-blank. You know, I'm just a secretary or, I, or, or a housewife or I'm just a file clerk. And then you really probe that gently with them and you say, well, now, wait a minute. You know, don't you lead at times in your church or synagogue or, 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 or mosque? I mean, don't you lead at home with your family, with your children? Aren't there some non-profit? Well, well, yeah, but I'm not really a leader. Well, leadership is a choice that you make, and some people have the title that makes them a leader, uh, but other people choose to lead at times, and they speak up even as a voice of one. And so we didn't have, years ago, that dialogue, that wasn't going on because the model came out of World War II and the military, and it served us well. But in this age of uh, a lack of engagement and transparency and the millennials and folks like that, people are looking for something different. And so this new model, I think, is emerging. But that's not the way it was when I entered the workforce. And that's why it took me decades to learn this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm a slow learner, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, gosh, the, the amount of work that you've had to do for this book, 61 organization, 11 countries, and, and I'm looking at the companies that you've talked to, and it's just amazing, the plethora. You know, one thing that's really hit close to home to me, you know, being just outside of Wichita, Kansas, you know, the Greensburg tornado was, uh, what, 2007, and you, you, I see that you interviewed uh, the mayor and also the, uh, the, the founder and executive director of Rebuilding Green after a tornado. You know, Greensburg was huge here, obviously, you know, just outside of Wichita, and just a completely, for the people who weren't familiar with this, just completely, I mean, leveled a town. A, just nothing was left, and it was yeah. such a tragic, um, and minimal lives yeah, were lost. But, but tell me about that. Tell me about that experience and what you learned. Well, what a story that was. You're right, 2007, Category 5 tornado, uh, winds over 200 miles an hour, leveled Greensburg, Kansas, town of 1,500 people. Twelve people died, 95% of the buildings were destroyed, right in Tornado Alley. And afterwards, the leaders of the town got together and said, well, should we rebuild? Uh, why don't we just move? And then other people said, no, we've got a lot of roots here. And so leaders from all sectors came together. The John Deere tractor dealer, the general manager of Pizza Hut, 
you know, the fire chief, the police chief, uh, teachers, they got together and they set a vision to rebuild Greensburg as the greenest town in America. And they set that vision and it caught fire and it went on the national news and then FEMA rolled in and the American Institute of Architects volunteered and the National Renewable Energy Laboratory volunteered to help them. They set up uh, volunteer tents there that hosted like a thousand people a month for a couple of years. And the result was in 2009, Greensburg, Kansas was rebuilt and the head of the... uh, uh, one of the agencies there in Washington named Greensburg, Kansas, as the greenest town in America. It's an amazing story from rubble, 95% destroyed, of what a committed group of volunteers can do with a vision and collaboration where everybody put their egos aside. It's a fabulous story. Yeah. I just got, I mean, it, it, it hits home here because, like I said, it's just about you know, a couple hours to the west of us. And I remember when that happened and everybody just thought, you know, there's no way. And, and watching it rebuild and shortly, and it hasn't even been that long um, and to see where the city's come from. I mean, it's, it's not the same. It's different, but that's that's what you have to yeah. deal with. The fact that you see um, that leadership in action, really, where some people had a vision. And, um, yeah, it's just amazing. What else did you learn from, I mean, um, gosh, a Pitney Bow- Bowes, which you worked for, um, I see that you interviewed with them. What was uh, any lessons from that? Well, we talked to Mike Critelli, the former CEO of Pitney Bowes, and he talked about, and we outlined this in our third practice, which we call Steel and Velvet. Steel is the hard edge of leadership. You have to get out of whatever your normal leadership style is and sometimes go over to the hard edge to use your title, your position, your authority to say, this is what we need to do, okay? But if you're there at the hard edge all the time, uh, as you know, Richard, people are just going to shut down and wait for you to tell them what to do. So unless it's a crisis where you have to be in steel more often, you need to go over to the velvet side of leadership, which is to zip it up, to listen, to be patient, to unleash other leaders to lead, as we said. And Mike Fratelli said, I can't tell you the number of times, Bob, where I, I knew I could do something better, I knew I could do it faster, but somebody else wanted to lead. And so I had to, quote, bite my tongue, unquote, to be quiet and to let them lead, even if I knew they would make some mistakes, because I had the opportunity to coach them along, and that's the way we developed other leaders. So when you're over on the velvet side, you're unleashing those other leaders. When you're over on the steel side in crisis, you're exercising your command and control authority. Those people who believe the hierarchy is going away, we're going to live in these leaderless uh, organizations, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, there'll always be a boss, there'll always be somebody that you report to, but it's going to be a lot more empowered through the stewardship that we were talking about before. So Mike Rotelli talked to us about uh, steel and velvet and biting your tongue. That's great insight, and I love how you put that back and forth. You're right, because sometimes I think leaders think it's it's either or. And you're absolutely right that sometimes we have to, I mean, you have to be comfortable going into different areas. It may not be your strength to be on the razor's edge or the hard edge, but you can't, like you said, stay there the whole time. You need to kind of... No. And, 
And it's not being in the middle, halfway between steel and halfway between velvet. Sometimes you have to flex to the left. Sometimes you have to flex to the right. Thank you, yeah. It's not about having co-CEOs, one of whom is steel and one of whom is velvet, because that's going to be schizophrenic. To the yeah. Audience. Regardless of what your Myers-Briggs or Insights profile is, whether you're an extrovert or introvert, if you're an introvert, there are times you're going to have to speak up. If you're an extrovert, there are times you're going to have to zip it up and be quiet. Oh, I'm so glad that you said that. You're absolutely right. I think that was the, one of the hardest lessons that I learned, thinking I had to find the right way to lead. Well, there is no one right way to lead. Different circumstances call for different types of leadership styles, and you have to be comfortable moving in and out of, of all of them. Sure, you're going to have your strength, like you said in the Myers-Briggs profile, and that's what you're going to be most comfortable in. But to be a true professional leader, like you said, you have to move, be comfortable moving into those other, other roles. And that's where you should, should augment your weakness and learn how to, how to get comfortable in those. Oh, I love that you said that. Yes. Well, let me comment on that further, if I may. And that is you have to adjust your leadership style for the situation and the people involved. Yeah. You deal with tenured faculty differently than you deal with migrant farm workers. You deal with a crisis uh, much uh, you know, much differently than you deal with a high growth, high high margin situation. But there, that that there was a model of leadership that was popular some years ago that talked about situational leadership, and you have to adapt to the situation. And I just said that you have to adapt to the situation. But there's a big caveat that I want to put there. You always, if you want to be an effective leader, in our opinion, Greg's in my opinion, you always have to anchor the steel and velvet to the shared values. You never deviate, regardless of whether it's a crisis or a high growth situation, tenured faculty or a migrant worker, you never deviate from the collaboratively set shared values that this is how we're gonna behave. So situational leadership, yes, but always anchored to the shared values. Explain your steel decision in terms of the shared values. Explain your velvet. I'm not going to make this decision. I'm going to let Mary run this, and whatever she does is fine. Explain it in terms of the shared values. So values-based leadership anchors situational leadership. Beautiful. Brilliant. Love that. And you just... You're getting me. You're crystallizing so many of the things that I'm passionate about. I just, I love those. Well, you're, you're very kind. Yeah. What else? I mean, what what's next for you guys? You know, it's kind of funny that you got a triple crown leadership, and um, what a great time with um, California California Chrome. Chrome. Yeah. And now you've got the kind of the any similarities. What talk a little bit about the um, the title and how that kind of relates to horse racing? I mean, is there any similarities? Oh, big time. Um, as we as we interviewed these 61 organizations and teased out the five practices, the overarching uh, goal that we wanted to set was that organizations need to set as their top priority to be excellent, to make your numbers, to do it ethically, and to do it in an enduring fashion, to do it in a way that was sustainable for our planet, for the people, and in terms of the practices that you use. I'm sorry to say in my early career I borrowed sales from quarter two to make my quarter one numbers and that put me on a on a treadmill where I then had to borrow from quarter three to make quarter mm. two and it was unsustainable right or I burned people out so we wanted to get 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 this idea of the triple E's and we were talking about these three things and our agent said well what about the triple crown of thoroughbred horse racing 
and we frankly didn't know much about it. So we bought every book, watched every DVD, and we found some incredible parallels in there. And we tell the stories in the books, Seabiscuit and Ruffian. But the most impressive one of all was the story of Secretariat winning the 1973 Triple Crown. And that's the story of a great horse, no doubt about it, but also of Penny Chenry, uh, his owner of the trainer, Lucian Lauren. We interviewed Ron Turcott, the jockey, Eddie Sweat, the groom, um, Bull and Seth Hancock, who were neighboring uh, 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 horse people. It was a group performance, and when Secretary won the Triple Crown in 1973, he broke the Derby record, he broke the Preakness record, he broke the Belmont Stakes record in, in a world record time that stands to this day, so it's enduring. But they did it in a way that was ethical. Ron Turcott, the jockey, was a very ethical person. Penny Chenery, the trainer, was a very ethical person. So we found in this microcosm story of Secretariat winning the Triple Crown illustrations of excellent, ethical, and enduring. And it was a, it was a great segue into our theme. Oh, I love that. I wonder if, how that applies. I, I'm I'm not that educated on California Chrome, but I, what I do know is that it's kind of a oh similar in the Secretariat story that it's not the traditional breeding uh, kind of pedigree. I think um, I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think California Chrome was was bought at auction for uh, ten thousand dollars or something <laughs> right. like that. Yeah. And they have this very unassuming owners. It's going to be. It's very difficult. The Triple Crown hasn't oh, yeah. been won since affirmed won it in 1978, and only 11 times since 1875. So it's a very. It's called the most elusive championship in all of sports. So we thought it was a good metaphor, and then we use uh, um, various horse racing metaphors for the five practices that we outlined in Triple Crown leadership. Well, I love how you put those together, you know, excellence, ethical, and enduring. You know, it, it. one thing I talk about here a lot and what really bothers me, it does seem like we're kind of bathing in mediocrity, or at least we, we're getting to a point, uh, maybe I'm just more aware of it, but it does seem like we celebrate mediocrity more than we did maybe 20, 30 years ago, and, and uh, things that were just kind of commonplace, we kind of celebrate now, and, and that bothers me. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think I think that's true, but I, as I said before, Richard, I'm really an optimist. As I talk to young high school, college, MBA students, I see a whole different mindset. They're really concerned about collaboration, about teamwork. They want more meaning in their work. They're not just suits as we used to be. They don't wear suits anymore, but they're not just suits going to the office nine to five. They want to feel that they're making a contribution. They're concerned about the environment. They're concerned about um, a lot of social problems and things like that. And that's why this leadership work that we're doing and that you're doing is so important because unless we give them other models to talk about, other frameworks of leadership to talk about, they're going to be stuck with what we've been doing wrong for so many years. So while, yeah, there is mediocrity today and there's burnout and, and people are concerned about jobs, I see a sea change coming. It's not going to happen probably in my lifetime. But over the course of the next decade or two, I think there will be fundamental changes to how businesses and nonprofits and uh, educational institutions are run much more in light than they were when I was growing up. I'm glad that you said that. We know we've talked about that on this show. I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of startup people, and and 
And I posed the question that, well, is it because I'm just coming to the game late? Where I kind of felt that sense too. The more that I've looked at, say, the millennials, I sense uh, I w- I became optimistic too when I plugged away or turned off kind of the, the traditional noise and started looking at some of these stories. I what you just said, I've seen too. I've seen um, where they want to be. A part of something bigger than themselves, where as opposed to when I was their age, you know, in the mid '80s, uh, I was focused on me and what I could do to get ahead. And I don't, right. I, I see, a, like, you, maybe it's a sea change. I, I'm glad that you see that because I sense that. I just didn't know if I was coming to the party late or if I'm just, you know, looking at something that that's always been there. Or I didn't know, but I'm glad that you're optimistic about that. Oh, good. Well, tell me a little bit about your son. You know, we were trying to get your son Greg on here. It was supposed to be you and your son Greg. I'm gonna. I, we've agreed to do a separate interview with him. But give a quick shout out with him and talk about him about what you know, how he's uh, kind of fits into your equation and what you guys do at Triple Crown Leadership. Well, he's an amazing person. You really got the short end of the stick when you got me. You <laughs> I don't know Greg about that. <laughs> so I do hope you'll follow up. Yeah, with I will him. definitely. Um, He's a graduate of Claremont College. He has a master's degree from the London School of Economics. He has an MBA from Yale. Uh, he's worked in uh, Washington and think tanks. He's the co-author of three books. Uh, he was involved in a very successful startup uh, that then went public. Uh, he ran his own consulting firm, and he's now in Sweden, where he teaches entrepreneurship and leadership at the Royal Institute of Technology, which is Sweden's equivalent of our MIT. He's an adjunct professor there. He's married with two small children, and he is uh, so bright. Uh, he will probably write a dozen or more books in his life. Uh, he has a passion to help people uh, with their personal leadership journey. Uh, and having co-authored three books, this is my first book, uh, Son Outshines Dad Considerably. We wrote this book as peers. We couldn't do it as father-son, so it was peers. Uh, he was living in Sweden when we uh, wrote it, so we did our interviews on Skype and recorded them and transcribed uh, all the recordings and analyzed them on over 30 different parameters and teased out these five practices. So it was it was a labor of love for Greg and for me. Well, you, you should be very proud. I mean, I'm sure you are. I mean, what um, I and I just even the short conversation that I had with him. I'm looking forward to capturing an interview with him. You guys are doing amazing work. Um, well, I have to tell you, Richard, that there are certain days in your life that are so memorable. The day you're, you got married or your first child was born, when Greg and I were in Vail, Colorado, to a packed house doing the launch of the book, and our family and friends were there, standing room only, and our uh, uh, my wife, his mother, our other son, his brother was there. That was one of those special moments in my life that I will never, ever Oh, good. For, great. That's great. That's awesome. Uh, you guys are great. You guys are awesome. I love what you do. How can people get in touch with you? How can people find you? Well, the best way is to go to our website. Thank you uh, for uh, for asking. It's it's a very simple website, triplecrownleadership.com, triplecrownleadership.com. We blog every week. We invite guest blogs. We tweet, uh, and we're on LinkedIn and Google and Twitter every day. Uh, we have videos there of our speaking engagements. Uh, we have resources to help you figure out your personal values for book clubs. A lot of free resources there. So have people check out triplecrownleadership.com, sign up for our newsletter, and 
you'll get a uh, monthly recap of uh, our blogs and tweets and where we're speaking and things like that. Awesome, Bob. Thanks for coming on the show. You guys are doing tremendous work, like I said. I will have links to all this on the post when I get it out here, and I will have your son on this show. It'll be um, a great conversation, too, I'm sure. This has been so fun for me, and I'm so glad uh, that you came on the show. Thank you for the work that you're doing, Richard. It's really important to make our world a better place. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again. Good luck. God bless. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology. Making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.